So uh, today we're going to, the reason I'm uh, stalling is because I don't want to talk about what I'm going to talk about, uh, which is a hard topic. Uh, we're wrapping up our Paul series, and I invite you to take out your study guides. You'll need those today um, to write your, your hate mail to me for what I'm going to say. Uh, you'll know what I'm talking about in a second, 51% uh, of you anyway. Uh, we're talking about women, men, and marriage today through the lens of the Apostle Paul. So I hope whether or not you're married, divorced, single, engaged, whatever, I hope that today's message is informative and inspiring and helpful to you on the journey. I stand by my claim throughout our Paul series. We've been talking about the Apostle Paul all month at the story. I stand by my claim that Paul is extraordinarily underrated through the, the lens of history and historians undervalue what Paul brings to the table. Time Magazine ranks Paul at 34th in terms of the most influential people who've ever lived. 34th, right behind Charles Dickens, which I just can't fathom. That I think is why Time Magazine is out of print. God read that and was like, whatever, I'm done with Time Magazine. I mean, Charles, like the Christmas Carol story would have turned out a lot different had it not been for Paul spreading the Christmas message, you know, westward. Like Tiny Tim would have just like plotted to kill, you know, like it would have been ugly, right? So Paul is the reason why this radical message of salvation by grace through faith becomes more than just a sect within Judaism within Jerusalem, but it, it, it spreads throughout the Roman Empire. Paul is the reason why. Paul says, look, we don't need all these people who aren't Jews, but they want to follow Jesus. They don't need to be Jews first. Let's just open up the doors to everyone, whether or not they have their religious house in order. Let's say, if you want to follow Jesus, come follow Jesus. Paul is the reason that happens. And we owe so much to this uh, man who I believe stands only second to Jesus when it comes to historical influence and uh, importance. But I do understand that there are many Christians, some of you in this room, who do not look upon Paul as favorably as I do. It seems to be a popular kind of thing for certain Christians to really love Jesus, but to just kind of tolerate Paul. Like I hear it a lot, and some of you might have said or heard things like this. Well, Jesus started a movement. Paul started a religion. Or Jesus was fun and hip, Paul was kind of a stick in the mud. You know, Jesus was all about freedom and love. Paul was all about rules and oppression and keeping people out. And I think that is the most unfair, ridiculous thing we could say about the man who is solely responsible for opening up the floodgates of the Christian message uh, to everyone and not just to certain people who had their religion Right, And so part of this series has been geared toward recalibrating our understanding of Paul and being more fair to this man who I believe was not only a creative genius, but a, a revolutionary in terms of what he brought to the table. And what we have to remember whenever we read Paul, whenever you come across parts of Paul's writings that are admittedly difficult to understand, admittedly hard to swallow. Some of you have been personally hurt or harmed by people quoting Paul verbatim. And I am with you there, man. I'm not 
sweeping that under the rug at all. I'm just saying whenever you read Paul and you come across a problematic passage or whenever someone else quotes Paul to you to kind of put you in your place, I want you to go and search your heart, search the scriptures yourself with the Holy Spirit's help and ask yourself what Paul is getting at here really. What is Paul's end game whenever he says these things that are so often misquoted and misused, admittedly again, by Christians? Because what I want us to see is that almost without exception, Paul's goal isn't to make political points about social issue X. Paul's goal, almost without fail in his letters, is to make disciples. Paul wants to make disciples of non-religious people. Paul wants to communicate the gospel message of Jesus to people who are secular to people who would identify as agnostic or irreligious, which is important for us to remember because what are we doing here at the Story Houston? That is our stated goal, is to communicate the gospel to non-religious people. That's what we want to do. And so we have a lot to learn from Paul. Whenever you come across something that's hard to understand, I, I pray that you will look at those passages through the lens of Paul the evangelist, Paul who's sole purpose in terms of an end game or an objective was to bring people to Jesus, not to make social points, you know, X, Y, and Z. Now, I'm not saying that Paul's words about social issues don't matter. They absolutely do, especially in terms of things like marriage and gender. I'm just saying we have to be careful how we read and interpret and communicate Paul to the people around us. And, uh, and today we're going to do that with a talk about marriage. Marriage. All right. So uh, let's talk about Paul's basic teachings on, uh, on marriage. And we have these on the screen, I believe. First of all, these come from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 14. First of all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that being single is better. Single people, let me hear you. Right? You have a leg up in terms of Paul's understanding, uh, I know we have flipped that script in modern day times and we Christians have made it sound like being married is better than being single. The Bible would say differently. The Apostle Paul says, Be, stay single if you can. And basically what he means in one passage, he says, it is better to stay single, but if you, you cannot control your sexual urges, then you should get married. <laughs> That's an actual verse. One time I had a young couple getting married and they asked me to surprise them with the verse that I read at their wedding. You're right. Surprise. Mom and dad were sitting five feet away. You know, it's great. Um, single is better, Paul says. Paul says marriage is about discipleship. Another word for that is sanctification. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that a husband can be sanctified or saved by his wife. A wife can be sanctified or saved by her husband. Uh, it's about discipleship. Third, uh, Paul says uh, that marriage is about equal worth and equal rights. Um, and I know that is not what you have heard about Paul. But I'm telling you that verbatim, that is what Paul says. And in fact, he says it about sexuality. He says, husbands, first says, wives, if your husbands are in the mood, it, it's your duty to uh, be there for him sexually. Uh, and your body doesn't belong to yourself anymore. It belongs to your husband. And the husband's like, yeah. You know, and, uh, and then Paul says, oh, oh, and by the way, husbands, if your wives are in the mood, uh, you better be there for your wives. And not many people know Paul said that, but Paul told first century men that their bodies don't belong to themselves anymore. Their bodies belong to their wives. 
women who weren't even allowed to own property in most places at that time could own their husbands, literally. And so Paul says it's, uh, it's an equal sharing in that way, and not just sexually, but in other ways in the relationship as well. And third, uh, fourth, uh, this doesn't come from 1 Corinthians. This actually comes from Ephesians 5. Marriage requires submission. And this is where I'm going to lose some of y'all, uh, but uh, hang in there with me. Ephesians 5, if you open your Bibles, it's where we're going to be for the, most, uh, for, for the majority of the rest of our time together. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Take your Bibles or your Bible apps, and let's read through that together. All right? Ephesians 5, verse 21. It's also on your study guides if you can't find it. Paul says, submit, submit, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For none of you hates his own body, but you nourish and tenderly care for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body." For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery. Oh, good. You're still here. That's great. All right. Uh, Y'all hang with me. This is a great mystery, Paul said. How many of you married people have ever gotten to the end of a really hard day at home? A lot of bickering, a lot of fighting about really non-essential things, but you just fought like cats and dogs with your spouse. He left his uh, underwear on the floor, or he didn't do the dishes like he said he would, or, or you know, she, instead of letting you watch the Astros game, she insists on watching The Devil Wears Prada again, even though she's seen it 46 times already. And as it turns out, that's the night that Mike Fires throws the no-hitter and you missed it because you were watching The Devil Wears Prada with your wife on the couch. And you can't even complain to her about it because she fell asleep two-thirds of the way through and now she's mouth-breathing like six inches from your face. Totally hypothetical. How many of you have ever gotten to an end of a day like that, laying down next to your underwear-leaving, no-dishwashing, romantic-comedy-loving, you know, mouth-breathing uh, spouse and just said, this, this is a great mystery. Like, <laughs> that is, that I think is what Paul is communicating. It is indeed a great mystery. And this passage, I think, is where Paul starts to lose modern-day people, people who are educated, um, women especially who are forward-thinking and maybe a little more progressive in their mindset. A lot of people these days, and even men uh, these days, are really turned off by the idea of submission. Submission, we think, is something of a bygone era. We're not even really supposed to talk about it in church anymore, not the Methodist church. We're, we think we're like past things like this. In seminary, it was like you just kind of have to explain this stuff away 
or you know you have to try and and just skip over it entirely and not talk about what Paul is saying here. I I refuse to act like this instruction isn't here because I don't think Paul is being a bigot or a misogynist or a chauvinist um, at all when he says, wives submit to your husbands. But because of political correctness and the feminist revolution of the last generation, everything has kind of changed in terms of the way we look at the gender roles within marriage. Uh, everything has shifted. A generation ago, I could have said this, you know, wives submit to your husbands without anyone thinking twice about it. Obviously, yeah, a generation ago, it would have made all the sense in the world. But I know it made some of you cringe. The idea that wives submit uh, to husbands today, because while marriage a generation ago was about duty, Marriage was about uh, reaching, you know, beyond your own needs and serving the needs of others. You know, marriage was about more of like a common good. Now, um, uh, the idea of what marriage should be has changed. I do a lot of weddings. I am counseling right now 11 couples in premarital counseling. If you're getting married, one of my favorite things to do is premarital counseling. Let me be a part of that with you. I love weddings. But sometimes I wonder if when we do the vows, if these two people standing in front of me really know what they're promising. Check out the, the wedding vows. I mean, these are, uh, do we have the wedding vows somewhere? No? All right, well, I'll read them for you. No problem. The wedding vows are where you commit, you promise to have and to hold someone for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Now, these ideas are, are, are foreign to our understanding of what marriage should be because those ideas, those vows have nothing to do with your own happiness. They have nothing to do, they're not predicated upon your spouse meeting your needs. And so marriage, whereas before it was about duty and doing the right thing for society and for your spouse, now it's more about like feeling and emotion. There's our vows, uh, feelings and emotions. And, uh, and so sometimes I wonder if like the vows of marriage actually match up with uh, what we really think marriage is. I, I sometimes wonder if we shouldn't just say and be honest at weddings and be like, I promise to love you as long as I feel loved by you. You know, like, I promise to love you as long as you're a size six. Or I promise to love you as long as, you know, I feel butterflies when you walk in the room. I promise to love you as long as you meet my needs. Because that kind of a consumeristic relationship is what most of us, thank you to Disney and Hollywood and others for showing us the way here, it's what most of us come to expect. And so we set marriage up that way. And then we wonder why in the world it doesn't work out later. Now, I, I know as we talk about uh, the difference um, between uh, uh, a consumer relationship and what marriage was meant to be, which is like a covenant relationship, I, I know there's all sorts of feelings in the room. I know that there are people here who are divorced. I know there are people here who are about to be divorced. I know there are, are people here who are divorced because of someone else's decision and not your own. I just want you to know, I want you to know that God's mercy is greater than anyone in this room can possibly conceive and God's forgiveness and God's grace and the ability to have a second chance or a third chance and start over again. God's mercy endures forever. And so nothing that 
I'm saying here today is meant in a disparaging way about what you've been through in the past. I also know there are people in the room right now who are in a very bad situation at home. You're in a very bad marriage. And I fear that you're going to hear me say that good Christians always stay. That good Christians stick it out. And that is not at all what I am saying. There are biblical, reasonable reasons for good Christian people to leave a marriage, okay? Especially in situations of adultery, uh, uh, endangering the family, abusive situations. Look, women, if you're in a situation at home and you, you are living with someone who has threatened violence against you or has made you fear for your safety in your own home, this is your pastor telling you to get out and move on. Do it today. I've got a friend named CJ. I don't know if he's here, but he's six feet tall and 300 pounds. CJ, are you here? All right, he's not here, but I will call him. And he does like mixed martial arts. And he will, I will go with you too. Not, I'll pray, but he will protect you. <laughs> and we will get you out of that situation. And God will bless you on your journey. All right. That's, I'm not saying anything about situations like that. But I am saying the game has changed in terms of how we view marriage. We have come to view it as a consumeristic relationship. It was always meant to be a covenantal relationship. Covenant is based on grace and faith. Consumerism is based on wants and felt needs, right? We have come to view marriage this way. What I'm saying is that Paul and the Bible would have us view marriage as a covenant. I watched the YouTube video of uh, the wedding of Shaquille O'Neal and his wife back in 2002. And the preacher uh, was leading Shaq through his vows. And uh, when they got to the part where he said, for richer or poorer, the preacher said, prompted him for richer or poorer. And Shaq said, for richer or richer. And uh, instead of poor, he said richer again. And, you know, like the preacher, everybody just laughed. And the preacher didn't like correct him on it. I don't know why. Like, why not correct Shaq? Maybe it's because he's seven foot one, you know, or whatever. But he just went on as if nothing had happened. And, you know, I thought maybe that's just Shaq being honest, you know. But shockingly, uh, it didn't last, uh, that, that marriage. It didn't last very long because I fear Shaq, like many of us, get into marriage looking for our needs to be met by our partner uh, instead of uh, a covenant where we love through thick and thin. All right. So I'm going to get us uh, back to the quote we were on before. This is on your study guides. Marriage used to be a public covenant or a communal covenant for the common good. And now it is a private arrangement for individual satisfaction. Marriage used to be a public covenant for the common good. Now it's a private arrangement for individual satisfaction. It used to be about us as a society. And now it is about me and my needs. So here's where we land on this. Here's why I land on this. This is something I never would have said five years ago. It's something I never would have said 10 years ago. I am an open-minded person. I'm an educated person. I've got two degrees of higher education from liberal institutions. I would describe myself as an unabashed feminist in terms of desiring equal rights for women and equal pay in the workplace and all of those things. However, Given all that, given the fact that my wife is smarter and stronger than me in almost every respect, I also want to stand here today and say 
that if Christian marriage is going to work, if Christian marriage is going to reach its potential, wives must learn the art of submission toward their husbands. Now, before you get up and walk out, give me 10 minutes. Deal? I have 10 minutes? Somebody start the clock. I wish we had the, the scoreboard clock back there so I could actually have... Some of you wish I was on a clock most Sundays. So, <laughs> all right, 10 minutes. I want to explain Paul's point of view on this particular passage. So, so important, so important because we do such an awful job of communicating this biblical truth to the non-religious secular world out there. So here we go. First of all, Paul is specific, very specific when he makes this claim. Paul says, Christian wives should learn the art of submission toward their husbands. Paul doesn't say all wives. If you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you. If you really struggle with the idea of spousal submission, don't become a Christian because Christianity is really all about submission. So maybe it's not the journey, you know, for, for you to, to be on. Also, this is important. Paul, and we get this wrong a lot. I think, think we think it says something it doesn't say. Paul doesn't say a Christian woman must submit to all men everywhere, all the time. Paul says, in the home with her husband, a Christian woman should learn the art of submission. The second thing Paul assumes, y'all still with me? Y'all still like me? Stay with me. The second thing Paul assumes is that there is an equal inherent value. There are equal rights. There is equal worth. For women and men. Now, if you polled most people, maybe if I polled the room before we started, you wouldn't probably have said that. Paul believed men and women were of equal stature and equal value. Um, but it's another way that we've undervalued Paul. Paul was the one who empowered dozens of women to lead his churches. He listed them by name at the end of several of his letters. He called at least one of them an apostle of the church in Romans um, 16. And then of course in Galatians 3.28, Paul says there is no longer male or female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. This would have been a radical statement today to say there's no longer male or female for we're all one. But in the first century world where daughters were valued less than sons, women were valued less than men. Women couldn't in most places own property or testify in court or have any representation legally or governmentally. Paul says these words. There's no longer male or female for we're all, Christ, we're all one in Christ Jesus. This was Paul's world in the first century, Paul's people, the Jewish people, Jewish men, often prayed this prayer as part of their liturgical journey through the year. The men would stand and say in the temple, blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a woman. So we pray that on Sundays? <laughs> not me. That's what people were praying in Paul's community. That's the context into which Paul speaks. There's no longer male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. So people complain a lot when they hear that Paul said women, Christian women should remain silent in church. Paul hates women, they say. Paul's a chauvinist. Paul is a misogynist. 
they say. But we forget that when Paul says Christian women should be silent in church, it's the first time in Judeo-Christian history that women were permitted to be in church. That for a thousand years before that, women were kept out of the fullness of worship with God. Women could only experience God through their husbands or through their fathers. They were not allowed into the inner presence and the inner sanctuary. Here, Paul says women are in the sanctuary. So you can look at this and you can say, well, Paul hates women. He wants them to stay quiet in church. Or you can look at it and say, Paul really wanted to make sure Christian men knew Christian women belonged in the church, in the inner sanctuary, in the fullness of God's presence. It's a revolutionary idea that you only see if you look for it. So, and then later, whenever Paul deems his communities ready for this kind of social leap, Paul does say that Christian women are permitted to speak and to lead in churches. All right. Now, the third thing uh, that has to do with Paul's point of view, Paul's assumptions, this might be the most important one for some of you. Paul doesn't let men off the hook. Ladies, sigh of relief. Say an amen for me. All right, so men, earlier when I was saying the part about wives submitting to their husbands, if you were nudging your wife, so and see, see, like, you know, like, <laughs> you should have been submitting to me, won't you? Know, that, you spoke too soon. All right, Paul starts this passage with submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Paul says, submit to one another. I uh, heard a pastor one time telling a story about a couple that came in for some marriage counseling. Their marriage was on the rocks. They came into his office and uh, uh, she was there crying and he was there with his arms folded, a big old burly guy. And you could tell they were on the brink, you know. And uh, the woman was crying and she said to this pastor, she said, he just doesn't love me anymore. He told me he doesn't love me. And the pastor looked at the man and said, is it true you don't love your wife anymore? And the man reached for his Bible and he pointed to Ephesians 5 and it says, it says right here that a woman should submit to her husband. And then it says a man should love his wife. If she'll submit to me, then I'll love her. <laughs> As pastor, I had to break the news to the guy that that's not how it works. Um, gentlemen, that is not how this works biblically. That is not what Paul is saying. So we have to do a better job of explaining this concept to our non-religious uh, friends. When Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. What we know about Christ's love for the church is that it left him alone and broken, in pain, naked, and dying. His love for the church left him humiliated. That's what the cross means, is that Jesus loved us so much that he endured all of what he endured, endured the cross and the shame out of love for us. He submitted himself, Paul says in Philippians, he submitted himself 
unto that death. When Paul tells women, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he's not creating an imbalance that favors men and putting men in this position of power and a pedestal over their wives. If anything, he's saying wives submit and husbands submit even more. Submit even more to your wives. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Take up your cross for your wife, husband. Endure whatever shame or whatever pain or whatever humiliation comes your way, but do it out of love for your wife. As Christ loved the church, men, love your wives. Submit yourselves to whatever it takes, whatever it requires to show your wives how much you love them. In Romans 5, 8, Paul says that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. This proves God's love toward us. And here's the difference, guys, between a consumeristic relationship and a covenantal one. A consumeristic relationship says, I will love you if you deserve it. A covenantal relationship says, I will love you no matter what. I will love you when you're not lovable. That's what Christ did for us. And that's what we are called to do for one another, specifically in this passage, husbands, men, that's what we are called to do for wives. Number four, Paul assumes his readers are filled with the Holy Spirit. We're Methodists, most of us. Do y'all know what the Holy Spirit is? We don't talk about it very much in the Methodist church. We don't talk about it nearly enough. We know Paul assumes his readers are filled with the Holy Spirit because three verses before this in Ephesians 5, 17, Paul says, do not be foolish, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he explains what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and how people who are filled with the Holy Spirit behave. And then he gets into marriage. And so for Paul, there's this direct connection between spirit-filled and Christian marriage. There's this connection between having the spirit in you and loving your wife and respecting your husband. So here's the difference that uh, the Holy Spirit makes. And here's what sets Christian marriage apart in my view. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, when you opened yourself up to God in worship and the, the spirit indwells your heart, your most basic needs, your most basic desires, that empty space in your heart, it's already filled before you meet your spouse, before you even look at your spouse. That most basic need is already filled. And so you don't need a spouse to fill it. And so if your spouse is having a bad day and fails to meet some need you had before, the Holy Spirit has already filled it. The Holy Spirit gives you confidence. The Holy Spirit gives you assurance of God's presence and love. The Holy Spirit reminds you of who you are and whose you are of, uh, of, uh, created in the image of the living God. The Holy Spirit informs you of this. And so when you go to your spouse full of the Holy Spirit, everything changes. If you go to your spouse needy and desperate and longing for your spouse to meet your every need, that's a whole different story. Christian marriage, Paul assumes, means the people involved are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
One of the great threats to your marriage, if you're married, if you will be married one day, if you were married and are, are no longer married because of divorce, probably one of the great threats to your marriage was self-centeredness. Where everything in a relationship essentially revolves around your needs being met. And we have this idea that if my needs aren't being met, then I kind of have a license to walk away because marriage means having my needs met. Christian marriage is about the Holy Spirit meeting your basic needs and then you sharing in this beautiful relationship with God and the person God has given you. Tim Keller says self-centeredness is the greatest threat to a lasting marriage. And he says, listen to this, married people, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in our marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. If two spouses each say, my self-centeredness is the problem in our marriage, then you have the prospect of a truly great one. The Holy Spirit heals self-centeredness. Okay, wrapping up here, but when I think about my wife, we've been married for over 16 years. I have a picture to share with you of our wedding day. Ta-da! No laughing. Who laughed at my wedding picture? <laughs> okay, it's a little funny. We were 13 years old. Uh, no, it's uh, June the 5th, 1999, about 10 miles west on Westheimer Road, we were married. Um, when I think about my wife, a lot of words come to mind. Beautiful smart, dedicated, and honest. She has a purity of heart um, that you just uh, wouldn't believe. But when I think about my wife, um, really the one word that comes to mind uh, more than anything else other than beautiful, gorgeous, smart, and funny is, and this sounds strange, salvation. And I'm not saying my wife is my savior. This isn't Richard Gere and Julia Roberts in that uh, movie. She rescues him right back. And that's not what I'm talking about. Some of you are not old enough to remember <laughs> Pretty Woman. <laughs> and that's very depressing. <laughs> but God has used this woman to save my soul repeatedly and incrementally to speak truth into my life, to give me accountability, to give me support, to give me forgiveness. And the reason my wife has been such a, a channel of salvation in my life is because she herself is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has already met her most basic needs. So when I screw up, as I've been prone to do, when I break her heart or break her trust, as every person does in over 16 years of marriage, when I don't get it right, her basic needs are already met. She's not a total mess just because I'm a mess. The Holy Spirit has met her needs. I pray that every person in here has the blessing and privilege one day, if you don't already, of being married to someone who is filled with the Spirit of God. It is a beautiful, wonderful experience. And it is why I'm a completely different man today than I was 16 years ago. 
Uh, I heard someone say one time, my wife has been with five different men since the day we got married, and every one of them was me. (laughs) That's how I feel sometimes. Y'all were worried for a second there. (laughs) Spirit of God has worked through this woman and has changed my life and continues to change my life with forgiveness and mercy and grace and understanding and wisdom and trust. This is what Paul says Christian marriage should be. You can get rid of that for now. It's distracting me. This is what Paul says Christian marriage should be. Not romance, discipleship. Doesn't always feel good to you. It is always good for you. This is what it means to live in a Holy Spirit-filled relationship together. If you're, if you're married, I, I want to tell you today, I can say without question that I am closer to Jesus today because of my marriage. And I want to just ask you the challenging question. Can you say that about your marriage? Can your spouse say that about you? Because of you, your spouse is closer to Jesus today. And if not, if you hesitate, then what needs to change today? How can you open yourself up more fully to the presence and spirit of God in your life? If you're uh, divorced, you know, you've been through it. You know how a marriage can fall apart. How can you prepare yourself now so that if you're married later, you know you stand on the foundation of a relationship with God in whose image you are made? And if you're single and hope to be married one day or you're, or, or you're engaged or you have a significant other you hope to walk down the aisle with one day, what practices can you incorporate into your life now that open your heart up to the Spirit of God later so that you don't rely on that person you're with To meet your every need, your every basic need is met by God. And whatever needs your future spouse meets, it's icing on the cake, you know? This is what Paul invites us into, whether it's marriage or just relationship with God. This discipleship, this depth, this spirit-filled growth. Today, as we close this Paul series, I hope that you've gotten a greater sense of what Paul was all about, calling us into a deeper relationship. And I want to give you that opportunity today. Some of you mentioned last week that I said, when we did our baptisms, I said I would give folks an opportunity to come and recommit their lives to Jesus. And what I would do if you're already baptized and today is a day after this Paul series is ending, you want to recommit your life to Jesus, come forward during communion, just whisper in my ear, say today is the day. And we're going to have a time at the end of the service, whether you want it to be in front of God and everybody or just you and me at the end of the service, we're going to pray. I might use a little water from our baptistry to remind you of your baptism. Or if you haven't been baptized, let's do that, man. Let this be the day that you say yes to the grace of God, that finally your faith in God's grace meets God's love for you. In this holy intersection, you will never be the same. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your mercy and love. We do not understand the expanse of your love for us. How you look past everything we've ever done wrong and you forgive everything we've left undone. God, we do not understand 
how grace works. But we choose to believe today that Jesus is who he said he was. That Jesus has come to bridge whatever divide has existed between you and us. And that no matter what we've done or the things we've said, our worst moment, God, it doesn't matter. We are welcome here with you in this place, at this table, in this communion. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Help us, God. Open us up to your spirit so that we can love our spouses and we can love each other the way you have loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.